What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Hughes to Healing podcast. It's Dr. Pam and Dr. Janae here with another mental health conversation. But before we jump into it, how you doing today, Dr. Janae? I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. How you doing, girl? I'm doing good, too. It's been a a cool week. Love that. Okay, so today we're going to talk about an extremely important topic, and it can be a little sensitive. It can be a little taboo. We usually don't really talk about this in our community, but that's why we're here to talk about some of those things that need to be talked about. So I'm going to drop a content warning here because we will be discussing suicidal ideation. So just trigger warning. Yeah, it's really important, right, to make sure we have that content warning, that trigger warning for our audience. Um, Also want to piggyback on that, that it is extremely sensitive. We are intending to handle this with care and the ultimate goal is support. Have to hit you with our disclaimer that, again, this podcast, our conversation, or listening to Dr. Pam or myself is not intended to provide a sport, is not a substitute for therapy, and it does not constitute a mental health treatment or client-therapist relationship. So, again, just had to get all of those matters out, especially around a topic as important and as sensitive as today's is. But I want to start off talking about facts. Um the fact of the matter that suicide rates are increasing about 36% in the past 20 years. That is a Mm. steep increase. Um, There are a number of factors that may put someone at risk. um, And we will discuss those throughout this episode. I just feel like people minimize just how common suicidal thoughts are and the fact that they more than likely have had them in the past or may be currently experiencing them. Um, Because again, going off facts, according to the CDC, their data from 2021 indicates that 12.3 million American folks have thought about suicide. So 12.3 people just in America, we're not talking about the other countries, territories of the world, but 12.3 million from 2021 data. And that's wild because let's really think about it. You know how underreported things like these are. So if Mm -hmm. those are 12.3 million reported, right? Think about how many have gone unreported or how many have not even been discussed to the point where they can be counted among that 23, that uh, 12.3 million. You know what I mean? So that number is probably way larger than that. So before we can even challenge folks to address their suicidal thoughts, we have to get to a space where they can even admit that that exists and we need to normalize it because it is extremely common for people to experience the suicidal thought or just, even if it's in passing, um, Mm -hmm. even if it's not something you have said personally or have experienced personally, there's even in conversations where we talk with our friends, our loved ones, and they'll say something that's like, hold on, wait a minute, Um, borderlining on that suicidal thought of like, you know, girl, sometimes I just didn't even feel like waking up today. Mm -hmm. Or something like, man, you know, the way life is life is, (laughs) gonna take me out. And Mm -hmm. it's like a joke, but that's an expensive joke. You know what I mean? Because in reality, if we dissect that comment, it's like, you just don't want to do it anymore. You're tired of life. And that's what we call like a passive suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. But it's been normalized so much in our culture and our, our, our discussions that even that is not seen as, oh, that's not abnormal. That's not, they don't, they don't mean it for real. Yeah. And like you said, we minimize it so much because we've put this idea in our head that suicidal thoughts are not common. So we think of the most extreme situations or people that present with the most severe symptoms. And you talk a lot about how one of your coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms is humor. Like you said, so people may say it in a joke. People say it in a joke or people say it in passing. Or again, you have this notion of somebody being strong, right? And that goes against your perception of someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts. So there are so many misconceptions and myths. Um, So when we add all of that up with the fact that we often believe that only a small portion of the population experiences suicidal thoughts, um, it's really difficult for us to feel vulnerable enough and supported enough to express when we are having these thoughts and it's more than a joke um, or nowhere to go. So with the misconceptions, it's so hard to stand up and say what you need and then also not knowing where to go. So hopefully, you know, whether you yourself have or are experiencing suicidal thoughts, we still encourage you to stick with us because we're also going to help you to hopefully help someone 
that may need support in your circle, in your community. Mental health in general is stigmatized. And that is one of the main reasons Houston Healing exists. But when we start talking about conversations about suicide and suicidal thoughts, um, then we really are talking about stigma. And we're talking about a ton of misinformation that is really important to address. So one of the first ones that Dr. Pam, I know you've experienced this because you're a therapist and most therapists can tell you that we've experienced this. The first misconception that we need to break down is that admitting that you have suicidal thoughts means that you're going to be institutionalized. Exactly. It's like I was saying earlier, when you have that friend now say something like, oh, I woke up this morning. I didn't want to, but I did. And I think, I don't know if you experienced this as a therapist, like automatically my eyebrow goes up. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't don't be trying to put me in the hospital or nothing. I ain't crazy. I ain't going to do it. I'll just play it. Don't be trying to lock mm-hmm. me down, trying to put me in a room with the padded walls. And I'm like, I didn't even say nothing yet. But like the defense is interesting. And mm-hmm. you do want to go a little deep in it, deeper into that. But just because you acknowledge the fact that you're feeling this way doesn't mean it's automatically about to lock you up and, and take away the key. That's that's one of the biggest misconceptions. It's like, as soon as I admit to this, somebody's gonna lock me away and mm-hmm. and tie me up or whatever whatever that that visual is that they have. It's like, oh, this is why we can't say it because I'm gonna get locked away. Right. And I think people will be surprised to know how many individuals are being treated by a professional or a set of professionals who are actively experiencing suicidal thoughts and they are quote unquote free. They are not institutionalized. They are not hospitalized. And that become that that has to do with the fact that it is the provider's job to assess your risk, right? Yeah. And it is our job to assess risk, right? And we're going to identify your safety, your support. Um, how much of a threat are these thoughts? How realistic are they? How realistic is you acting on the thoughts going to be? We're also going to identify the coping skills, right? So Reporting that you are feeling suicidal or that you have felt suicidal does not automatically mean, like you were saying, Dr. Pam, this whole like lockup, this this padded wall, straight jacket type of thing. And I think that's also important to know, too, is that it doesn't look like that when someone does need to be institutionalized, but also recognizing that individuals who have to be institutionalized, it's there to keep you safe and for your best interest. So the denying what you're feeling because you don't want to be safe. That's a problem in and of itself, right? So that's really loaded. That's that's just a, a loaded thought process in general. Like, I'm not going to tell you that I don't want to live and I want to take my life because if I tell you, you're going to prevent me from doing so. But like you said, it does not just get out of your head that admitting suicidal thoughts, suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation equals institutionalization. And even if it did, it's to keep you here because we want you here. I think another misconception that... Um... I deal with or I I interact with a lot is that suicide or death by suicide some way somehow is the easy way out or is seen as a like a sign of weakness. Like mm-hmm. if I admit to the fact that I think about taking my own life or I think about ending it all, then I, I'm seen as weak. Like I'm not strong enough to combat what life is giving me. And it's like, no, that does not mean that at all. Yes. And then that is a big one. You you said it perfect. For whatever reason, we have identified feeling suicidal as a sign of weakness. And I argue with people all the time that admitting that life has gotten so difficult that you are struggling to continue living is one of the biggest ways that it is one of the biggest proponents of strength. To be able to allow yourself to be that vulnerable, to identify how much of a struggle it is to do something, and then to say, like, I'm tired. I don't know where to go. When you are admitting that you're suicidal, that is you challenging yourself to go against every negative thought, every sense of hopelessness and helplessness, and doing all the things that we've called you all to do every week, to lean on community, to be vocal, to be vulnerable. And it's saying, I'm struggling. Help me to see the light. Help me to recognize the good that's not happening right now. Help me get through this this trauma, this grief, this heartbreak, this darkness. There's so much strength in identifying that you're struggling to live, right? And so you need to give yourself credit 
you're in a space where you feel supported, right? So you need to give credit to your professionals and your personal circle. Like admitting suicidal thoughts is the furthest thing from weakness. Wanting to end your life, that is a byproduct of something going on that needs to be investigated and explored. It is not weakness. At all. I don't, I think that's a major, major key because a lot of times, and this might be another misconception, right? Where people believe that if someone has a suicidal ideation or they die by suicide is because they want to be dead. Quite contrary. Mm -hmm. It's because they are experiencing something in life that is so overwhelming, so overbearing, so traumatic, and just so heavy that they feel like they have no other option or they have no other out. It's almost seen as a way to end the pain. It's almost seen as a way to take back control because they feel so out of control, so out of whack, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it it's not that someone's like, hey, you know, you know, I think I just might die today. It's it's not wanting to be dead. Nine times out of 10, they don't want to be dead, but they see no other way because so much is going yeah. awry. So much is um, taking from them that they, they don't see another option or another way out or another way to end their suffering. And they're mm-hmm. like, this is all I have. And so when you admit it, and that's what we were saying, it's so much, it's, it's such the opposite of weakness because it's saying, I myself don't see any other option. Help me, help me see another way. Cause I've been sitting here. I've been replaying things. Like you said, I want this pain to end. I want the suffering to stop. And I know that this is not the right solution, but it's all that I can come up with. So I am partnering with you. I am entrusting you with something as important as my life. Help me to see another way. And so that is such strength. That is such trust. That is such connection. And you should be proud of yourself for admitting that. Um, And folks, when you are told this information, anytime, like you said, when it's a joke, when it's not a joke, when it's very fact-based, we need to take these comments seriously because someone is coming to us and they are entrusting us with something as precious as themselves. So we need to take it serious. We need to find support. If we are the professional, we need to do all the things that we've been trained to do to help them. Um, Another misconception that I think also prevents folks from talking about suicidal thoughts, um, wanting to end their life by suicide, is that people believe that having these conversations increases the likelihood that someone will go take their life. Someone will die by suicide. That is always, we always hear that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So school them real quick, Dr. Pam. What What does research say? What does literature say about that? I mean, literature says exactly the opposite. When we start having that conversation, we're able to get a little deeper to find out why that's even a thought. Whereas, as opposed to the belief that if we talk about it, oh, they're going to want to do it. Okay, it's going to give them the motivation to do it. No, when we ignore it, then they're sitting and they're stewing Mm -hmm. and they're thinking about this as a viable option, right? Like we said two seconds ago, it's... It's in a space of feeling like that's the only option. So when you don't Mm -hmm. share that with anyone, you don't see another point of view, or if you don't see another way to handle it or give it to someone else to help you see something else, that's what you're going to stick with. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's my one in the corner pocket. That's what I'm going to do when it's just too much because that's the only Mm -hmm. thing I can do. But if we stop being so uncomfortable with the topic and allow space for people to be transparent and vulnerable, allow space for yourself to be transparent and vulnerable, then we can find, no, that's not the option. It's not a real option. We have other things we can do. Let me help you carry this burden. Let's get you some professional help. Let's get you access to resources because there's so many out there and there's so many things that you can do. And we're about to get into that. But it's like, First and foremost, let's not get it twisted. If we have the conversation, doesn't mean they're going to go and say, yeah, I'm I'm locked down on this decision. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to help them see another way. It's going to help them see that maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's not as bad as they thought it was, or maybe they are not in this alone. Yeah, no, like I said, it is the complete opposite. So please throw that misconception out. Talking about suicide fosters a space of understanding and support. It does not perpetuate the act itself. Um, so yes, I'm so glad you said that perfectly. They just need, you, you need to say it again because how, we hear that all the time. 
um, and it is counterproductive to healing. The one that I am so used to, um, and I'm gonna use a direct quote, I'm gonna say it straight up, um, and tell me if you've heard this one, Dr. Pam. Mm-hmm. Be like, suicide is some white people shit. Uh, all day, all day, every day. And I it's like, it's, it's really not. I feel like it's because, again, we're going back to those notions of strong black woman, that toxic mm-hmm. machinery. We don't do this and we don't do that and we don't talk about this and all of these things. So then it's like when our uh, white counterparts or other people of other um, ethnicities have those conversations, like, oh, that's just for them. When in actuality, when you look at the statistics, that is not what's happening. Um, according to CDC, um, between 2018 and 2021, there was an increase for 19% of African-American people, an increase for 26% of American Indian Alaskan Native population in suicides alone by completed suicides. Mm-hmm. 19% of Black people, 19, uh, 26% of American Indian people. And I'm sure if we went to more ethnicities and other specific populations, there would be an increase there too. So just because Mm -hmm. we're not talking about it, just because we're not looking at it, just because we refuse to identify it, doesn't mean it's not happening. Not only is it happening, but the more that we stop talking about it, the more we ignore it, the more it increases. And we got to understand that this is not just affecting white people, never was, and definitely will not always in the future only affect them. That's not that's not mm-hmm. true. But yeah. again, that's an excuse in a way that we pacify it so we don't have to deal with it. But again, absolutely. Just like you said, and, and numbers it, don't lie. It. Suicide rates are increasing across the world, across all populations, across all genders, racial identities, ethnicities. But we are seeing significant increase in communities of color. And there are a lot of reasons why we could speculate. There are a lot of fact-based reasons, right? But it doesn't matter. The fact remains that folks are feeling like suicide is their only way to stop the pain. And it is our job and our responsibility to change these numbers, to make sure that we are getting in the way and letting folks know like, hey, we need you here. You belong here. Like, I get it. Life is rough. Life is life in. I can understand why you feel that way. But let's start to have the conversation. Let's start to incorporate support. Let's start to be there for folks as they're on this journey, not just the superficial showing up for folks and buying gifts and doing all of the things that are meaningless. Like let's have meaningful connection and there's no more meaningful way to be there for somebody than to help them understand the importance of them living, right? Yeah. So you talked about the data as the increase in the Black community or in the American Indian Alaska Native population, or even like suicide is the 11th leading cause of death for Hispanic and non-Hispanic people of all races. So again, people of color across the board, um, regardless of how you identify, are seeing an increase in suicide rates. But then it's also important for us to recognize that, you know, um, our identities are intersected. We're not just the race or ethnicity we belong to or the gender identity we have or our sexual orientation. So when you start to factor in those additional things, risk can increase. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's beyond our race and ethnicity, but individuals who are a part of the LGBTQIA community, individuals with disabilities, veterans, those in specific careers that um, are deemed at-risk populations or at-risk occupations rather, um, they have higher rates of suicide. So when you really start to look and think about this, there are so many things that happen when we talk about marginalization, um, racism, sexism, like inequitable distribution of resources and where we live, trauma. There are so many factors that play a role into your risk. Um, But for us to just believe that our cultural identity alone exempts us from suicide is a misconception that is killing us. Quite literally. So it's like now that we've identified what this big purple elephant in the room is, and we've given facts and we've been able to kind of like unveil this this thing that we refuse to see what do we do with that what do we do with this elephant in the room what do we do about those thoughts how can we address it when we see like you know that one friend that's making that joke a little bit too often or Mm -hmm. the one friend that has cut everybody off and we don't know what's going on anymore or they're not Mm -hmm. at their same lively bubbly self like or the friend that just gets up one day and 
you know they love their cat, but all of a sudden they're talking about giving away their cat, giving away mm-hmm. the things that they love and hold dear and cherish. And you're like, wait, what's going on? What do we do with that? Yeah. Right. I mean, like everything that we talk about on this podcast, um, that reflection and awareness component, those are critical to change behavior. So if you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, but you're not giving space to them, you're just suppressing them, you're acting like they don't exist, or you think it's just a phase or it's going to pass, like you are lacking the awareness that you need for a change behavior. You are not sitting in reflection because those thoughts are uncomfortable, because they're difficult, because they're stigmatized. So you have to start there. Any change behavior requires those two things. So suicidal ideation is no different. It's actually more important that you spend time in contemplation, reflection, and an awareness phase. And then after you do that, you have to allow yourself to recognize that you do experience suicidal ideations. It's that acceptance, right? So you've done all the other reflection and stuff, but you still may try to dissociate. No, I was having a bad day. It was a rough chapter. It was a bad break. No, stop. And declare it like I do experience suicidal ideation and you need to admit that to yourself, but you also need to admit that to trusted others like we've been talking about, because that is going to be one of the preliminary things that reduces your risk of acting on it. Um, Like you said, Dr. Pam, like people sit with those thoughts and they ruminate and they become more of a reality. And oftentimes we know this, the actual act itself is very impulsive. You know, you thought about it, you weighed out the options, but you let it go this time, you let it go the next time. And one day things feel so heavy that you take that action. And it's very impulsive in nature. And individuals who have attempted suicide and have survived and have lived through it, when they've been interviewed, they talk so much about in that moment where luckily for them, the suicide did not end in death. They talk about like, I didn't want to die. I realized it in that moment. And thankfully, they're here to tell that story. But it is a very impulsive decision based on feelings and emotions that have been unaddressed for so long. Um, And so when you admit that to yourself and you admit that to others, we reduce the, the possibility of that impulsive decision taking place. And it also increases the support systems and services you need to address the suicidal ideation. For sure. And it's like understanding that, like with everything, I'm... I'm going to sound wild right now. Everything happens on a a spectrum, if you will, because there's like extreme Mm -hmm. and there's like very light. So even with suicide, suicide ideations, there's a range. We have to Mm -hmm. understand that it's not just one and done. We have to understand Mm -hmm. that it's not like either I want to be here or not. Things in life are not that black and white. It's Mm -hmm. very gray out here. You know, so we have to see that there are varying degrees. There's mild, moderate and severe. There's passive suicidal ideations. Like like I was saying earlier, like ah, I woke up this morning, but, you know, I would have been just fine if I didn't. You know, mm-hmm. that's passive. I'm not saying that I want to do something. So but I am saying that, like, listen, I thought about it if I didn't wake up and I was OK with that or that indifference of like what mm-hmm. is life, you know, and that can be seen more as passive, but it's still as important that we need to address that Mm -hmm. all the way to the top and the more severe of the people who are actively thinking that this is an option for them and thinking about maybe how they would do it. Um, I've had experiences or had conversations to where um, in my professional life, where it's like some people were in such a traumatic state that they found comfort and, and, thinking about suicide and how they would achieve it because that's the only thing they thought they could control. So although they didn't see it as something that they were going to do right away, they did have a plan because it made them feel secure. Like at least if it gets so bad, I have this one way out and they wouldn't share that with people. And that is the other side of the coin where it's, Yes, it can be very, very impulsive, and a lot of times it is, but then there's the people that have been sitting and stewing and and ruminating and living with this for so long without it being addressed that they even have a plan or they have um, the idea of what would happen, what could happen. And for some reason, they feel comfort in that, but they're not sharing that. They're not able to have that conversation with people. So just understanding the varying degrees of this is important. It's very important. And I think 
once we start understanding a little bit more of how it's a big thing and it can vary, we then become comfortable to hold space for other people. Because a lot of times, like when we were talking about our misconceptions earlier and we talked about like the not wanting to talk about it, that's usually not for the person who is experiencing the thoughts. (laughs) It's for the person that has to hear it Mm -hmm. or the person that's caught taken back or the safe space that they try to share it in. And because you are uncomfortable or you are unable to sit with those um, feelings of losing that person that you love so much or losing yourself or whatever it may be, that uncomfortability is what stops people from having those conversations. So I think once we start understanding that, like, even if it's a small comment, a passive comment, something we deem as insignificant, we still need to be able to be comfortable enough to address it. So that Mm -hmm. if I say, hey, I've been noticing you've been making that joke a lot these days, and you say, oh, no, it's literally a joke. I'm not going to do that. That's not what I want to do. I'm like, okay. But I had to feel comfortable enough to address it or have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you say something that's a little bit more severe, I'm like, hey, friend, like, I think maybe we should talk about this with a professional. We should talk about this with this kind of person and have that Mm -hmm. conversation as well. So as we start to recognize the the different levels of it, I think it'd be important because then it it, it makes the conversation a little easier. Absolutely. And, And like you said, recognizing that nothing about the conversation is easy. But I think another thing that's really important is for people to recognize that the conversation needs to be focused on recognizing that suicide is not the answer and how to support it because we're super inquisitive people, right? And I've had people present to me that finally feel comfortable to admit their suicidal ideation or maybe their previous attempt. And the conversation goes on into this why, you know, why I'm experiencing the thoughts and why this is an option to me and why I'm giving in to this voice that's telling me that the only way to stop the pain is to stop living, right? Um, And so not only internally do we struggle with this, but a lot of times our support system is focused on that too. Why do you feel suicidal? What's going on? And, you know, then people try to use all of these, you have everything, you have a good job and this and this. And and that is a very damaging perspective to take, to be hyper fixated on the why the thoughts and the ideations are there as opposed to um, the solutions, right? Because people often underestimate how complex the mind and the emotions are. So when we're trying to get a one up on our mind and why we feel the way we feel or why we think the way that we think, we're not addressing the issue. We're just focusing and shifting to another part of the problem that doesn't bring us any solution. Um, So I would really call people to do that too. When we are working with ourselves and when we are working to support someone else, focus less on trying to pinpoint why the suicidal ideations may be there. Um, we, we do need to focus on that. Obviously, that is absolutely a part of the safety plan and the treatment plan. But make sure you're giving enough space to the person's feelings and to take action to rectify those feelings. So like when people jump on the why, why are you like you're counterproductive to the healing process? It's kind of like you were just talking about when people start to come up with their plan and their plan is actually becoming something that is an option and it's attainable for them and they're not communicating it, it's a counterproductive safety net. So there's so much in the suicidal ideation and attempt process that is counterproductive. So we have to recognize and call out the fact that they exist, but what are the constructive ways to address them as well? So I think that's where we get into why we have these conversations, right? Normalizing this, understanding that having passive thoughts or having suicidal ideations or thinking about dying by suicide is common. It's extremely common. And allowing people to remove the shame and the stigma that comes with asking for help, knowing Mm -hmm. that a lot of other people experience this, no matter color, class, socioeconomic status, uh, whatever you want to say, no matter what population, everybody's experiencing this, or they know someone Mm -hmm. who's experienced this, or they've been touched in it. They've been touched by it some way, somehow, to some degree. That's how common it is. It's like two degrees of separation, right? And once we start to understand that this is something real that 
people are actively dealing with day in and day out, we start to learn that there's more ways that we can help these people feel seen, help yourself feel seen, supported, and understood. And I mean, we, we give you guys tools weekly. We give you guys tools on many different platforms that can help us identify ways to get the help, access the help, be the help for someone else, be the safe space for someone else, be the safe space for ourselves and understanding that, okay, I really am thinking about this a lot. This is not okay. This is not something I want to do. I, I need the help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as being able to help other people understand that and letting it know that you're not weird, you're not crazy, you're not abnormal for having these thoughts because so many people have them. It's it's really, it is normal. Yeah. And the the most normal or the most common, and I think it's so difficult because people don't even necessarily identify it as suicidality or suicidal thoughts is what we consider in the mental health world as ambivalence to life. And it kind of Mm. mirrors a lot alongside the example that you've been giving is the whole like, you know, if I wake up today, you know, it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. Just that very indifferent, like I could live or I could not live. Mm. And that's typically how most folks experience some form of suicidal ideation. And then from there, it then becomes more of a passive thought. You start to think, well, maybe if I did this, um, or if I was, you know, if life started to get more rough, I think this is where I would call it quits. And then you start to think about the means. This is how I would do it. Um, And then you start to come up with the plan. And like you were mentioning, giving away possessions or potentially writing the suicide note, but it often starts with that ambivalence to life. So it's important to start to check yourself when, like you said, that my grandma used to always say there's truth in every joke. So when you keep making that joke, um, recognize, okay, I, I've been, I've been ha, 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 a lot about things about not being here, um, about how if I didn't wake up, bro, you know, shoot, if if a car crashed through this driveway right now, look, at, at least I went out to pay with my student loans. Like, yeah, that's funny-ish. But like, you keep saying that. You keep bringing up if you weren't here. But again, you yourself are not actively doing anything in these hypothetical scenarios. Um, that's what we that's what we call again ambivalence to life. And most everybody has encountered that. And some people they keep encountering that. And again, circumstantially and situationally, it may make sense why you have those jokes or those statements said in jest, but you have to check those and confront those when you're doing it. And you have to check and confront the other people so that it doesn't begin to manifest into more severe and active ideations that people are then planning and intending to act on for sure and it's like we understand these conversations can be so dark so heavy and it's like because of that cloud that comes with it we don't want to sit in it we don't want to discuss it we don't want to be in that space like even I'm gonna be 100% transparent here just even coming and having this conversation on this platform today for me, even as a clinician, although I do this in work, I'm like, oh my goodness, but we talking to our homegirls, like, how are we going to talk about this to, you know, I, I can't mm-hmm. hear, ha ha, I can't joke through this one. Dr. Janae, how you going to help me? Because it feels uncomfortable, it's dark, it's heavy, I get it, but it's necessary, you know? It's necessary that we have that conversation. If it gets a little dark, it gets a little heavy, allow it to be. Because yeah. in that moment, that's what was needed. People underestimate how liberating it can be once you are able to get that off your chest and be able to have that space to talk about it and then allow the people in your lives to support you, allow the resources to be a resource, you know, mm-hmm. and allow the things that are placed before you to help you to actually be helpful. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't have that, dark time, we can't get to the light. We can't get to the other side of it. We can't get to the key keys and the, you know, like, how are we going to be talking about improving your sex life or or being accountable and all these other things that we were talking about before and you don't even want to wake up in the morning, let alone mm-hmm. have sex, let alone go out and have friend time or whatever it is. We have to start at that point. That is the starting point. So whether it be a little dark, whether it be a little heavy, whether it be a little uncomfortable, sometimes we got to sit in that. For sure. 
Because that's the only way that healing takes place. When we uh, sit in the discomfort, we have to address it, sit in it and work our way out of it. Like you said, and actually utilize the resources that we preach about, that we give you guys, that we advocate for. Um, that honesty piece is so important. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the action steps of the conversation today, um, first and foremost, you got to admit it. You got to admit it to yourself above all. And then you have to identify the others you're going to be admitting it to. That's the goal. I got to admit it internally. I got to deal with and confront myself, but I also have to get this out. I have to get this to other people so that I have a system of support, that I have a community of resources. In that process, you need to remove the shame, the guilt, and the embarrassment. So by knowing now, Dr. Jane and Dr. Pam told me that it's actually more common than not. Maybe that will facilitate conversation. Maybe that will facilitate you being open and transparent with the therapist when they ask you that, with your doctor when they ask you that at your annual. You will be like, you know what? Yeah, I actually have because you don't have the shame. You don't have the fear of institutionalization or whatever was holding you back, recognizing that most people experience this. Most people who look like you experience it. Hopefully that information helps you to remove that shame, guilt, and embarrassment. Then, like I said, you're going to identify support systems. Who are the people in your personal life that you can turn to and lean on? Who are the professionals? How do you align with therapy? What are the resource centers available to you? What are the contacts that you need to have in your phone, on your refrigerator, on your dresser next to you? Whatever that may be, but you need to identify those support systems. And then once you've identified them, you have to seek professional assistance. Like having community is wonderful. Having friendship, having family, having partnership, all of those things are great. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say it loud and clear. You may not agree with me. You may not like me, but it's a fact. You cannot simply push through, pray through, and power through your suicidal ideations. Oh, come on. You can't. You need support, professional support, and you also need a personal community. You have to have the two things. So you got a prayer life, a faith life. Wonderful. That alone is not going to absolve the suicidal thoughts. Pushing through, staying busy, focusing on other things, repressing the thoughts, that's not going to help you. So again, you cannot simply push through, pray through, or power through suicidal thoughts in the discussion. So you need to create that support network. It's also extremely important to be proactive versus reactive. When you start to notice these thoughts and you start to notice the frequency, the intensity of them, you need to take action to address them. Again, like I just said, suppressing them and ignoring them, those are unhealthy and those can have negative consequences on you and the people who love you. And then you need to lean into healthy coping mechanisms because a lot of times we find people that struggle with suicidal thoughts and they've now become active suicidal thoughts and they've become pervasive suicidal thoughts. They more times than not present with negative coping mechanisms that they're using to drown out those thoughts. So now we're addressing two very severe issues that we may not have had to address if you recognized early on and were proactive and reactive. Substance abuse is very, very common with suicidal ideation. That is destructive um, isolation. Folks that, again, are experiencing suicidal thoughts isolate. That's counterproductive. So now we're working through that. Um, when you overwork and you avoid everything and everyone, that is going to create an mental and emotional crash and burn. So again, lean into healthy coping mechanisms and do it proactively because this is a difficult journey to be on. Um, don't make it more difficult than it has to be. And if you've already made it difficult, that's okay. We can undo it. Get with that support system, get with your professional network, get with your personal folks. Like it doesn't matter how much you're struggling with the thoughts. There is help. People want to help you. You need to be here. We want you here. So we will get through it. We will journey through however difficult the process is. But if you don't have to make it as difficult, take action now. Sure. And there's so many different ways that we can come and be of help. Like, from the top to the bottom, like we talked earlier, because there are varying levels of this, there are also varying supports for each thing, right? So Mm -hmm. like whether it be the 988 suicide and crisis lifelines that we're aware of, and I feel like a lot of people have heard those, like the commercials, the billboards, and the the different um, websites, and, and we're in a new age of technology, honey. There's chats, there's calls, mm-hmm. there's there's websites, there's 
instant messaging. There's all kinds of things, but we always hear it in the realm of the suicide and the crisis, right? But what's the Mm -hmm. step before that? They also have warm lines. Now, this varies by state to state, and they have different um, websites and things of that nature. But this warm line, as opposed to a crisis lifeline, is when it's not as severe. Maybe when you're Mm -hmm. still experiencing that ambivalence of life or when you're experiencing that indifference and you're you're noticing the things within yourself and you don't feel comfortable enough to go to your direct supports. Maybe you start here with the warm, warm Mm -hmm. lines. And of course, all of these resources will be tagged in our chat picture um, so that you can access them at any time. But this is just a brief explanation of like, what are the differences? Because before Mm -hmm. I started to do this work, I've never heard of a warm line in my life. I always thought, okay, suicide line, crisis hotlines, those kind of things. But this is like a step before, because like we said, there's Mm -hmm. different degrees of this and there's help at every every junction so as long as there is still breath in your in your body there's help this will be linked in the notes like you said dr pam but 988 save that in your phone you can call you can text you can chat Um, they have english options spanish options and then the warm lines like you were saying warmline.org you can go and see what warm lines you can reach out to in your respective area but that's one like you said i think that Therapists know a lot about that, but the community doesn't. So I'm glad you brought Mm -hmm. that one up because it's not for crisis, but maybe a crisis is impending. So let's, again, this is a proactive step to utilize a warm line. So save that, pass it on to somebody the next time they're making them jokes, you know, you can, you can give them that for sure. For sure. And then like, once we've gotten through the crisis, once we've, we've, or maybe we're trying to get a step before that proactiveness, right? Trying to figure out. If these thoughts come up, if these things happen, if this passes my mind, what do we do? That's when we get into safety planning. That's where therapy is very helpful. So discussing with your therapist, literally a safety plan. So when I have these thoughts, what are the things that I can do? What are my resources I can access? What are my coping skills on the individual level, right? What are the things that I can do for myself that will help me counteract these thoughts. Okay, when that's not working, what's the next step? What is my safety net? What is my community, right? And if that's not working, what's the next step? And being able to understand our triggers to these thoughts, being able to understand situational triggers, personal triggers, emotional triggers. And then once we're triggered, having a plethora of skills, interventions that help us minimize those thoughts or counteract those thoughts. So this is an active plan that this is going to look as different as each person that has this thought, because like we say all the time, mental health is not a conversation that's cookie cutter and it's made to fit one person or made to fit one situation. And this is going to help everyone. No, that's why you have to have that personal conversation with your therapist or your, your, um, professional support so that you can find a plan that works for you. Like, I'm not going to tell you that when you're feeling this way, go out and talk to 17 friends and you only really think you have two. It just doesn't make sense. Right. So you have to be in a space where you are having that transparency with your therapist to really iron out the details, identify your triggers, identify your real supports so not putting the friend that don't ever answer her phone, that's not a support. We're going to put the friend that will jump in the middle of the night and ride at dawn. That's the friend we're putting on the safety plan. You know what I mean? And being able to really come together and tailor a plan that will work for you and your specific situation so mm-hmm. that when these things happen, we have a plan. We feel more in control. We feel more proactive as opposed to reactive so we don't fall in the line of just going with the thought and letting that sit and breathe and grow wings you know absolutely so I just want to take this moment before we transition to anything else is that we're having these conversations because you are very much important to us right 
there would be no heels to healing if there was no one here to tap in to listen to us. We wouldn't be having a conversation if there was no one to be our homegirls and our homeboys and our community. So each one of us are very important. Each one of you are very important. So I think we're having this conversation, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's something that we don't think we like to hear or whatever it may be whatever your reservations are. We have these conversations because we want to remind you that your life is important, it's necessary, and there's a reason why you're here. And we have support systems, let's tap into them. Let's be able to support those who support us and continue to live life because you deserve a fulfilling life. You deserve to be happy in a way that makes sense to you. Your life deserves to be one that you choose and that you curate. So, absolutely, we're having this conversation to be here for you. Yes, right. Whatever you may be going through, like it will not always be this heavy. Um, And we get it. We get that how in certain circumstances, suicide can appear to be an option, but just know that it's not. There are so many other options that allow you to live your life and to heal from what is making you feel like it's unbearable, it'll never resolve. Things are manageable. You grow with them, you grow through them. So just continue to find support. And like Dr. Pam said, just know that we here for you, always here for you. We want the best for you. And that is why we commit to having difficult and uncomfortable conversations like the one we're having today. All right, because we're here for you, friend. Always. And with that, let's have a nice little transition to this week's listener letter. So this week's listener letter comes from Alicia. Alicia says, so my question is about therapy. So my current insurance doesn't cover therapy and y'all charge a lot as you should. (laughs) But outside of the talk spaces that offer different plans, are there grants or resources I can explore that will help cover the cost of seeing someone in person? Dr. Janae? That's a great question. And the short answer is yes. I'll break it down a little bit longer. Um, There are a number of resources to make therapy accessible. So yes, there are certain online platforms that their whole um, allure is that they can offset the cost that one may be expected to pay for therapy, whether that is they're completely paying out of pocket or they may have a high copay. Um, So some of those options do exist, but your specific question is asking about helping with covering the cost of seeing someone in person. So first and foremost, shameless and not so shameless plug, check out the mental health resource guide. We have a number of different platforms you can access, a lot of different ways in which you can navigate finding therapy at low cost, at no cost to you. Another thing that I think is extremely important to note is that you can seek therapists who offer sliding scale fees. And all that means is they are there to provide therapy for people who have limited income and limited resources. So they calculate a rate for you based on your income, based on what you can contribute. Um, And there are certain things that I wouldn't necessarily call them grants or scholarships, but there are organizations and corporations that assist with helping with the cost of mental health treatment. So um, again, some of those are on the mental health resource guide. Um, and you can always talk to if you are, um, you said it's in your particular scenario, you said that your current insurance doesn't cover therapy. You can reach out to them and see what they do cover. Um, I would also encourage you to see if it's possible to get a, a different plan that does cover it. Um, and then for those folks who receive their health care through government assistance, I always tell people that that does include mental health. So you want to contact your um Medicare or whatever it is and ask them how you can still access mental health services. So therapy can be costly. It can be expensive, um, but it does not have to be. And there is support. So I would ask, I would encourage you to reach out to your healthcare providers, your healthcare insurers, um, government entities. So if you look at your, if you look into your local, like social services, social security office, they often have resources for you. And then again, if you do find a therapist on whatever site you're looking at, whether they're in-person or virtual or both, you can always ask them if they offer sliding scale fees. They often indicate that on their website and in their bio, but just because they don't have it does not hurt to ask because that is something that um, can also offset those costs. So that is my advice to you. Um, shout out to you for um, 
seeking the therapeutic process and making sure that you are doing it in a way that is suitable to you and your financial restraints. Um, but we all deserve therapy and you do have access to it. So best of luck. I hope that you find a therapist and I hope I answered your question. Perfect. So let's get into this week's therapist recommendation. Is it my week or is it your week? It's your week, sis. Bless the Okay, dang. Okay, let me see. My therapist recommendation. Okay. So given today's topic, again, whether or not you are or have dealt with suicidal thoughts, um, we also need to be there. We need to be that community that we continue to preach about. So I want everybody, regardless of how personal this current message is to you, I want everybody to identify one person, one place, and one professional that embodies support, that make you feel comfortable, and that you could trust to rely on should you experience suicidal thoughts. So Dr. Pam, you spent some time kind of breaking down the safety plan, which not everybody's going to need a safety plan, right? But in us walking and being proactive, if you are able to identify that one person, that one place, and that one professional who you could call, who you're like, this is support, this is where I feel comfortable, this is who I can trust, if you have that tucked away in your mind, written down somewhere, should things get heavy for you, should things get dark, sometimes it's really hard to have clarity in those moments, right? So if you have those three, this is the person I can call, the homegirl, the homeboy, the cousin, whomever, this is the place that centers me, I feel balanced, I feel ease at this place. And that one professional, here's that therapist I'm a call, here's that doctor, here's that crisis line, that warm line. When you have that, I think that that is a really, really, really good plan for safety for all of us. And also we can utilize that and share that with others should they present with needing help. That's perfect. I love that. So that is our episode for this week. Thanks for tuning in and taking time to connect with us. But now it's time to do that work and you got this. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and check out our free mental health resource guide that'll be linked in the notes along with all of the resources that we've talked about today and probably some more. Please leave us a review because it helps others find us as well as it lets us know what you guys are thinking. So share your thoughts. We'll do a weekly call for listener letters on Instagram. So write us for a chance to get some insight from us, your homegirls, who happen to be therapists. See you next week. Bye, y'all.